that song talks about a lot of promises that God's Word gives to us that we will get to enjoy one day. And as our voices weaken throughout the remainder of this week as we go through singing instruction and all the singing we're doing, and won't it be nice to be somewhere in eternity with God where our voices won't get tired? Uh, we won't be weakened and sick and struggling uh, to make it through the week, um, but we'll be around the throne of God worshiping and praising Him and appreciate that song very much. God is faithful, y'all ought to finish that for me, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, that is our focus verse, and we're committing that to memory. And the reason we're committing that to memory is it's in Jesus Christ that we see the full plan and the faithfulness of God and all of his promises fulfilled in one person, and that being Jesus Christ our Lord. And if he's not your Lord tonight, I hope and I would implore you that you make a decision tonight to claim Jesus as your Lord. Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. Every promise he makes, he will keep. And he has made wonderful promises to those who would walk and, and seek after a life and a relationship with him. We started off Sunday morning talking about the nature and character of God and that faithfulness is not something God does, but it's who He is, His very essence and being. And we looked at how God is love and self-sufficient, eternal grace, patience, uh, wisdom, truth, righteous, uh, omniscient, uh, omnipotent, and certainly holy and separate from all other things. Uh, we have talked this week about various aspects of how we observe God's faithfulness throughout the history of man and, and throughout the scriptures that are revealed to us. And tonight we're going to continue with that. And we're going to talk about God being faithful in his kingdom. We talk about Jesus being Lord. Well, for Jesus to be Lord, that means he has to be Lord over something. And certainly we all want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that I can declare to you that Jesus is my Lord. That means I'm giving him authority in my life to tell me and teach me and guide me what it is he wants from me. And all of us walking in this life ought to have Jesus Christ as our individual personal Lord and Savior. But there is a collective of people who God has called out of this world that Jesus is the Lord over and that's his kingdom. So we say Jesus is Lord, certainly he's Lord of us individually, but he's also Lord of a group of people who are unified together under his authority, under his kingship. And for him to be king, he has to have what? He has to have a kingdom. You think it would be important for us to know what that kingdom is? And if that kingdom is here and available to us on this earth today, that we would place membership within that kingdom so that we are trusting in the faithfulness of God in his kingdom. Now I want to draw your mind back to Genesis chapter 12 and a promise that was made to Abram. We talked about this in the very beginning of our study, how God is faithful and he kept this covenant with Abram. Genesis 12 and verse 1 through 3, he gives three promises. Notice what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you uh, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And we emphasized on Sunday the idea that God said, I will, I will, I will, which speaks of what? That unilateral covenant that we covered last night. That God is saying, I'm going to do this for you. But notice the very last part of verse 3. He tells Abram, in you, all families of the earth would be blessed. Now, it's one thing for him to take Abram and make him a father of a nation. It's one thing for him to take Abram and give him physical land to go live in. But this promise supersedes all of those because he said, through you, Abram, all families of the earth. Guess who that's including? That's including us. He says, all families of the earth will be blessed because of this promise that God is making to Abram. And certainly Abram was faithful and he left his homeland and he went to the land that God led him to and he ultimately saw the fulfillment of at least the birth of a son. But I want to tell you the full fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abram. Abram, who became Abraham, was dead and gone before all those promises were fulfilled. Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament talks about the fulfillment of that idea that all families of the earth would be blessed through the lineage of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, there's that word again, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Do you understand what Paul is writing here? Notice what he's saying. He's talking to the churches of Galatia, And he's talking to them about this dispute about the law of Moses and and what Jesus came to accomplish. And he's saying the promise to Abraham that all families of the earth would be blessed in Genesis 12 is fulfilled in one person. Who's that? It's Jesus. He says he made that promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed all families of the earth would be blessed. And that one offspring was Jesus. Okay, you follow? And he says, just because there was a law given 430 years after the promise that was made to Abraham doesn't mean that the promise to Abraham becomes null and void. No, the promise of Abraham superseded the law that came later, that law of Moses and that inferior covenant that we talked about last night. And what does he say? He said, this promise is for who? All families of the earth. Jesus Christ is available to all of humanity. From the time he came to this earth, he lived and walked. He did miracles. He taught people. He performed miracles. He's put on a cross. He's crucified. He's buried in a tomb. And three days later, he's resurrected from the dead. From that moment, guess what? An offering has been made to every person that's ever lived on this earth. And that offering is to come into a covenant relationship with God. 
through the fulfillment of Jesus and this promise that was made to Abraham. Now, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah prophesies about a kingdom, specifically a mountain of the Lord's house that would be built. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning of verse 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of God, or the Lord, from Jerusalem. So Isaiah is prophesying about something that God is going to build. Where? When? In the future. Right? Because Isaiah said it's going to come to pass in latter days. Not right now when I'm alive, talking about Isaiah. He says in latter days... Guess what God's going to do? He's going to build something. And when he builds it, everyone is going to be able to come and be a part of this house or this family or this household of God. In Daniel chapter 2, we see another prophecy. And in Daniel chapter 2, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler of Babylon and he had a vision that caused him a lot of uh, nightmares, (laughs) pretty much. And it, it caused his sleep to leave him. And he wanted to know what this dream meant and, and what was the interpretation of that. And luckily for him, a man named Daniel had been taken captive. And Daniel comes before King Nebuchadnezzar and says, Not only can I tell you what your dream meant, but don't even tell me what it is. I'll tell you what you saw. Because God had revealed it to Daniel. And what was it that Daniel had been revealed? It said it was that great image of that head of gold the chest of arms and silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. And he says, It was in the days of these kingdoms shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. So I want you to think about that word kingdom for a second. Okay? Because Jesus talked about a kingdom. All of Jesus' preaching was about one thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay? He preached that message. He sent his uh, disciples out in the limited commission to preach that message of repentance. And everywhere he went, that's what he taught. Now, 17 times he said kingdom of heaven. 45 times he states the kingdom of God. Eight times he just refers to it as the kingdom. And then four times he says my kingdom. And throughout the remainder of the New Testament, there are 42 references to this idea of a kingdom. Okay? Well, Psalm 22 and verse 28 says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Now, is this talking about a specific kingdom, or is this talking about God's sovereign rule over all kingdoms? You see the difference? The psalmist is talking about everything belongs to the Lord. That's why he could use kingdoms like Babylon to bring judgment upon his own people. He could use the kingdom of Assyria to come in and take captive Israel and have them assimilated into Assyrian culture and society, never really to be identified as God's people again. And that was a direct punishment because of their lack of faithfulness to Him. But God, though He's sovereign over all kingdoms, 
he speaks of a very specific kingdom that he would separate out from this world. And that's what Daniel saw. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. And in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees that vision and Daniel tells him exactly what that vision was. He said, you, O king, guess what? You are the head of gold. And he said, after you is going to come another kingdom. And then after them, another kingdom. And he gets down to verse 44 as he's talking about that fourth kingdom of iron. And he said, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And if you remember what that kingdom was represented by, he said that there was a stone in that image that was cut out without hands. And that little stone hit the feet of this great image that caused that disturbance in Nebuchadnezzar. And all of that image crumbled to the ground and the wind blew it away. And that little stone cut out without hands grew into a great what? Mountain. Does that sound like Isaiah chapter 2? The mountain of the Lord's house would be established. It would be a great mountain and it would what? It would consume all of the earth. So all of this prophecy, Isaiah chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, is all talking about one specific kingdom that the Lord would establish in the days of the Roman Empire. Guess who lived during the Roman Empire? Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus said that he would build his what? Church. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And would give unto Peter the keys to the what? Kingdom. Jesus used the term church and kingdom interchangeably. So when Jesus is referring to the kingdom, he's referring to what Daniel prophesied about, what Isaiah prophesied about, and ultimately what we know today as his church. You know what the word church means? Called out. (laughs) Those who are called out. Have we been called out of anything? We've been called out of this world and into what? The kingdom of his dear son. Out of darkness into light. Do you think Jesus loves his kingdom? He died for it. He fulfilled everything that his father had for him to do. And in so doing that, he purchased a people. Not a building. Now, this is a beautiful building that we get to enjoy this week for this meeting. But I want to tell you, the church is not this building. This is a gathering place for the church. Because just because we walk out those doors doesn't mean we're no longer the church. We are the church. We're his people. We're the called out. And with that comes a great responsibility that we're going to begin talking about tomorrow. Because the reason God's faithfulness is so important for us to trust in is because it changes the way that we live. Because if he's faithful, what does he expect from us? He expects faithfulness. And we can demonstrate our faithfulness to God by serving him and being his ambassadors. And our understanding of the kingdom... I want to tell you, and what the kingdom of God is will dictate our philosophy and it will dictate our action and our service to God. And tonight I want you to understand how important this kingdom is to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus spoke of it this way in Matthew chapter 13. He taught a a parable. Now, Jesus was a master teacher. (laughs) And I want to tell you, we're going to talk about one verse tonight. And you say, how can you talk 45 minutes about one verse? Just wait and see. It can happen. Matthew 13, verse 40 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. How many of you have heard this parable before? One verse. We've heard it. Right? You've heard it taught. And when I've heard it taught, guess what I've heard? I've heard that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in the field. The church is like a treasure that was hidden in a field. And then we go and, and we finally get exposed to it or we discover the church. And guess what? We're willing to give up everything and sell all that we have to make sure that we can purchase that treasure and have that relationship in his church. You know what I'd say? Amen. <laughs> the church better mean that much to us. That we're willing to give everything else up for it. In fact, Jesus talked about the importance of discipleship and the cost of discipleship. Luke 14 and 26, uh, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Church, I'm talking to you tonight. If you're more concerned with being liked by this world than serving Christ, you can't be his disciple. You can't. That relationship will not work. You know why? Because Jesus said, this world hated me before it hated you. And brethren, this world's going to hate us. And they can dress it up however they want to, but at the end of the day, a lot of the things in our culture, in our society, the things that are happening right now are a direct attack on God's people. And if we turn a blind eye to it and just act like that's not happening, I want to tell you, we're fools. And rest assured, we're going to be put in difficult situations that are going to cause us to question our discipleship. And I want to encourage you today, stand with the Lord. When the Bible says something is true and honest, God is faithful. And when he says it's sinful and an abomination, it was an abomination then, it's an abomination today. And if we're not bold enough to say that out loud, I'm not saying be hateful. We're loving. But I want to tell you, if you knew I was caught up in some practice of sin, it would be unloving of you to come tell me about that sin. And you just acting like I'm okay in the sin that I'm in, I want to tell you, that's not love. That's not biblical love. And don't let the world redefine what God has clearly defined in his word. This world will hate you if you follow Jesus. Matthew 19 and verse 21. Jesus said to him, who's he talking to here? You remember the rich young ruler? came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do that I might inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say? Guess what? Keep the commandments. And that young ruler said what? Good deal. I've done that since I was a youth. I'm in good shape. But he still had a nagging question. But what lack I yet? There's still something that that I feel like I, I need to know. 
So what did Jesus tell him? If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what did this young ruler do? Did he go sell everything he had and follow Jesus? No. You know what the Bible says he did? He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. (laughs) He had an opportunity to be dedicated to Jesus. And he said, I can't right now. Because my possessions are too important to me. So when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God in Matthew 6 and verse 33, guess what that means? It means we got to give everything else up for it. And if we think about it being a treasure in a field that we discover and say, man, it's the most important thing to me. I'm selling everything else to have that. That would seem accurate, right? But let's revisit this. Because I think there's something else we can learn from this parable. You see, we would look at this view and say the treasure is the church. The field is this world, and you and I are that man. How important is the church to you? Could you imagine your life without it? I don't know what I would do, in all honesty. Our life is so interwoven and connected to everything the church is and the church does. It's, it would be weird to think about not having the church. But have we really left everything? You see, that parable says this person who purchased that field gave everything else up to have that single treasure. And this is where I have a little problem with this perspective because it seems to put too much emphasis on you and I. And when I read the Bible, most of the time, I need to keep the emphasis on who? Jesus. Because notice what Matthew 19 and 29 said as Jesus talked to that rich young ruler and he told him, hey, sell all your possessions and come follow me and you'll have eternal life. You know, one of his apostles piped up and said, Lord, we've left everything. The very thing you told him to do that he's not willing to. We've done it. Look at how great we are. You know who that was? Who is the apostle always opened his mouth before everyone else? (laughs) Peter. You know what Jesus said? You know, he didn't rebuke Peter. He didn't say you haven't left anything. What he said is everyone that has forsaken houses, brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. See, he said, yeah, Peter, you've given up a lot, but whatever you've given up, I've more than repaid you in this life and in everlasting life with me. So I want to take a look at this parable with a different perspective. Because I think think the man who found the treasure in the field isn't really you and I at all. Matthew 13 and verse 36 says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil ones. So in the same passage, Matthew 13, we have another parable taught about this sower that went and sowed seed and ultimately had what? The tares in the field. And who was that man? It was the son of man. 
And now we have another parable where a man finds a treasure in a field. Who could that man be? You see, instead of looking at the treasure as the church and the field as the world and the man as you and I, what happens if we change the man to Jesus? And Jesus is the one that found the treasure, the church, in the world, and he gave up everything to purchase the church. How's that fit? But, you know, in our 2023 minds, guess what we look at and what we say when we see this laid out? But what about us? Where am I? I I'm important. I, where am I in that? I'll tell you where you are. You're the church. <laughs> You're the treasure. Isn't that awesome? That the Son of God left heaven left glory, gave everything up that he had, and then gave his life and said, I'll buy you because you are a treasure. Do you feel like a treasure? Now, some days I do. There's a lot of days I don't feel like a treasure. I feel like an item that's in the back of the garage sale that nobody really cares about and wants. But thank God my Savior says I'm a treasure. And he purchased me. And he gave it all up for his kingdom, his church, which is you and I. That's how much Jesus loves us. So I want you to think about this. Does Jesus cherish the church? Ephesians 5, and talking about a husband and a wife and their relationship, he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and, and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. The very example of how a husband ought to love a wife. He says, that's how Jesus loves the church. He's willing to give everything for it, to, to protect it, to sanctify it, to make sure that that church is in such a state that he can present it to God, a glorious church. Because we are members of his body. We belong to him and he takes care of us. How much is the, the church? You know, how do you ascertain the value of anything? Very basically, what are you willing to spend for it? <laughs> At my house right now, I have an autographed rookie card of Emmett Smith. You know how much my wife would have paid for that? Nothing. <laughs> you know how much her husband was willing to pay for it? <laughs> More than Nothing. Actually, I had a good brother in Christ that knew I was a cowboy fan, and he gave it to me as a gift. Now, I have gone online to see the value of that. But, you know, if I put that up on auction, guess how much I could get for it? Whatever someone was willing to spend. That would tell me the value. What's the value of the church? You say, well, I don't know. I'll tell you exactly what the value of the church is. The blood of Jesus. Do you think he values the church? If he's willing to give his life for it, then guess what? It's pretty important. 1 Peter 1 and 18 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And it just hit me. Half of these kids don't know who Emmett Smith is. Uh, that bothers me. 
Imagine Patrick Mahomes, okay? Y'all know who he is, right? Okay. Guns up. Y'all are welcome. Helped y'all out. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 says, For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So pick up on this. You are bought with a price. What was the price? The blood of Jesus. That's how valuable you are to him. And he says, therefore, because of that, guess what? You glorify God. Does that seem reasonable? If Jesus is willing to give his life for mine so that I can spend eternity with him and have forgiveness of sin, that's an easy decision. Glorify God because of this. And we're going to start talking about that the rest of this week and our responsibility of responding to the faithfulness of God. So, so notice these two approaches. And, and I know sometimes we can get too dogmatic about parables and, and all these signs and things. And I don't want to do that because I think either teaching is applicable and I think it can be supported and is accurate, okay? And if sometimes we try to make a parable say too much, we end up, it doesn't say anything. <laughs> so so want to be careful with that. But I would offer this as a non-traditional view <laughs> where Jesus is the man and that traditional view of where we're the man and we're sacrificing everything for the kingdom and the church, and, and certainly those would be applicable. Instead of saying non-traditional and traditional, I would say a primary and a secondary way to look at this passage or this parable. Now, but Jesus is always preeminent. He's always first, okay? John chapter 6, verse 44, No man can come to me, Except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You think about your relationship with God, and, and yes, there are things you did to respond to the offering of a covenant relationship from our Creator. But no matter what you did, it wouldn't matter if it wasn't for what Jesus did first. He offered you an opportunity. And when did he draw all men to him? When he was lifted up on the cross. Verse 65 of John 6 says, And he said, Therefore I said unto you, That no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my Father. You see, so when we put the emphasis of our salvation on Jesus drawing us, and that's not a mystic force that God uses to pull us to him, but it was in the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross that he gave an invitation and made that offering, and we respond to that, we understand that that's Jesus' call and God drawing us to his Son. John 15 and verse 4 says, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, notice this, you can do nothing. What's that mean? It means without Jesus, you can do nothing for your salvation. You can be good. You can make good choices. You can do your best to not sin. You can be kind and loving and patient and all those attributes of the Spirit. And doing that outside of a covenant relationship with God means you're a good person that doesn't have a relationship with God. 
and God desires much more for you. You see, why you do what you do matters. The motives and the heart matter. And really, the picture of this parable is this. We look at what Jesus did in that primary approach to that passage in Matthew 13, and then we can apply it to how we respond to what Jesus did. So in essence, both teachings can be accurate, but I don't know that it's necessary. And here's why. Right after the parable of the treasure in the field, what's the next parable that Jesus teaches? You know, 45 and 46. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, this seems more applicable to you and me. We're a merchant man. We're walking through life, and, and through our life, guess what we're doing? We're identifying things we like, certain pearls, and we pick that up, and we add that to our stash, and we're gathering pearls. What do we want to do with our life? And we're building up this nest egg of pearls, and then guess what? We're introduced to the kingdom of God. And we see that pearl of great price. And guess what we're willing to do? We're willing to lay aside all the other pearls that we have gained, that we thought were valuable at one time, and said, all those things pale in comparison to to what I really need to have with Jesus. So when I think about these two parables right after one another, to me it fits that model of Jesus did this in purchasing the treasure from the field because he purchased the entire field which contained the treasure, which was the church. Because guess what? Jesus died for the sins of the world, the field, purchased the church. And you and I, guess what? When we find the church, we're willing to lay aside the things that we thought were really important to us to make sure that we have a relationship with Jesus. So what are our lessons learned tonight? Number one, you are valuable to God. Young people, look at me. You are valuable to God. God knew you before you were even born. God loves you. God has a purpose for you. And I want you to understand, don't let Satan or anyone else tell you you're not important and your life doesn't matter. Because God said you are a treasure to Him. And your life not only matters to Him tonight, it matters to all the gray-headed and bald-headed people in this audience tonight too. Because we love you. We care about you. And I share that with you because I know young people, even in the last few months, who have made other decisions and choices, and the reason they made those decisions and choices is they left letters behind that said no one cared about them and their life didn't matter. 
And I don't ever want to hear that about one of you. Jesus loves you. And to him, you are a treasure. Number two, Jesus sought you while you were in sin. Where was that treasure hidden? In the world. In that field. I want to tell you tonight, if you're in sin, separated from God, God knows that. Oh, You can come to singing school. Because guess what? I did it for years. I told you my first year was 1997. I wasn't a Christian. I was 17 years old. You know why I was at singing school? Because Brad was at singing school. Brian was at singing school. Chad was at singing school. There were cute girls at singing school. Chase wanted to be around them. I'm being honest. Okay? I came back the next year. You know what? I wasn't a Christian. I sat and I listened to sermons. I sat and I listened to the singing. I got up and practiced leading songs. Did all the same things. I wasn't a Christian. You know where I was? I was in sin. Because I would sit on a pew and sing songs about Jesus. And then I would go do things that God said were wrong. I would go participate in activities that had nothing to do with the Lord and they were all about my carnal nature and making myself happy. I would do that. I want to tell you, maybe that's you tonight. I I hope it's not any of you, but out of the hundred plus, I guarantee you, (laughs) we got some, that you'll sit on a pew, you'll sing the songs, but your heart right now is not close with God. Guess what? Jesus is still coming for you. Jesus is still wanting you. Jesus is working to get to your heart and into your life and into your mind so that you'll change and come to Him. And He's seeking you while you're in sin. I want to tell you, Satan doesn't see any value in you. He just wants to use you. You see, while that treasure was in the world, guess what? The owner of the world had access to it. He didn't appreciate it. And in a lot of ways, didn't even know he had it. Right? Which is why when the man Jesus found it, he hid it, went and purchased the field so he could have the treasure. Satan will tell you a lot of things that he'll give you that'll make you happy. And at the end of that, guess what? Is destruction and death. Satan, all he wants is to separate you from God. Don't listen to him. And don't buy into his lies. I want to tell you tonight, Jesus protects his treasure. You see, once Jesus bought that treasure, it was his. And Jesus is going to do everything within his power to protect that treasure, which is his church. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the praise of his glory. You see, when we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're given what? His Holy Spirit. We were the lost sheep that Jesus went to find that was in the world, separated from Him, while the ninety and nine were safely in His fold. And He went and got that one and brought it back so that it could be 
with he and his flock. Now, one last thing I want you to remember about that parable in Matthew 13 about this treasure. You remember it said that this man went and sold all that he had. He did that with what? With joy. He did that happily, with joy. Sold everything else to what? Purchase the field that had the treasure. With joy he did that. You know what Jesus did with joy? That we don't think about a lot of times. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that means? When Jesus was going to the cross, he endured the cross with joy. There was joy set before him. You know what that joy was? You know what I used to think it was? I used to think, well, it was the joy of knowing he was going to be reunified with his father and he turned in heaven. He was going to be with him. That wasn't the joy. You know what the joy that was set before him was? Was knowing that we would be saved. And knowing that he was fulfilling his father's plan that perfect plan and promise of redemption and establishment of a kingdom where his faithfulness could be on full display. Tonight, are you a part of that kingdom? You see, that kingdom that was prophesied of in Isaiah 2 and in Daniel 2, guess what? It came into existence in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, as Peter preached that first sermon about Jesus Christ, and his death, burial, and resurrection. And people heard that message, and people said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You know what Peter said? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Do you need that tonight? Tonight, maybe you don't feel like a treasure. Maybe you're beaten up, you're bruised, you're battered. You're torn. You're broken. Maybe you know you have sin in your heart. Maybe you know if you died tonight that you would be separated from God. Jesus gives you a path to His kingdom. And if you've never been baptized into Christ, you need to do that. Because in doing that, He places you in His church, which is His kingdom, and He gives you His Holy Spirit to protect and guide you as you grow and develop into who God has called you to be. And if you've done that, but your heart is wandering from God, we can pray for you. We can pray that you would be returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls so that you know you're a part of God's family and it is His kingdom. And if we can help you with that tonight, don't leave here without solving those problems. But bring them to Jesus as we stand and sing. Is thy heart right with God?